strategy, design, marketing, UX, digital, development. This is Agencies That Build. This show is dedicated to leaders and teams that design and deploy in the digital world. My name is Jesse, and I'm a marketer and an agency owner. And I'm Varun. I'm not a marketer, but a coder and an agency partner. This show is sponsored by Together We Ship. On a mission to help agencies grow. All right, here we are. Rock on. Varun, my friend. Welcome. I'm going to say welcome back from vacation, even though these episodes are usually evergreen. But um, welcome back yeah. to this coast. <laughs> yeah, you said vacation. I mean, I was talking to you earlier, like family vacation with kids. It's not a vacation, you know. It's, uh, it's work. <laughs> now I need a vacation after I come back from a vacation. So There you go. And Our guest yes. is nodding while you're saying this before but, we Varun, how, <laughs> how old are the kids? Four and eight. Okay, that'll that'll as the four year old gets older, that'll change. I know. I'm I'm waiting for that time. <laughs> and it's not <laughs> easy when your flights get cancelled. I don't know if you guys heard over the weekend, like of spring vacations and we were like stuck in San Diego for two more days and then oh and it was it was pretty uh, well, I, I don't complain. I think I should be happy, but at the same time, it was too much. But anyways, let's get back to our podcast. Who do we have today, Jesse? <laughs> our, our guest, our surprise voice on this introduction. He is a, and I cannot wait to ask him about this later. He is a full-time hobby farmer. So more to come there. He's an active board member and advisor to a number of reputable organizations. Too many to list as part of this introduction. He's a co-founder at Start Something Ventures. He's a co-founder and president of Full Stack PEO. He is the co-founder and managing partner of Developer Town, Michael Kelly. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. And I'm guessing based off of your commentary, you might have a couple of older kids. <laughs> uh, uh, not, not much older, uh, 11 and 6, but uh, even at 6, travel becomes ridiculously easier. Yeah. I can imagine. So, um, well, good. So let's start off. What is the uh, myth you would like to bust? What sort of misconception or bogus strategy would you like to set the record straight on? What do you want to clear up? What do you got? Yeah. So I was recently on uh, one of my partners, Daniel Fuller. He's uh, in Full Stack, uh, which is one of our companies. And Daniel has a podcast called uh, Savage to Sage. And he had me on the podcast and interviewed me. And he's got kind of a three-part format that he goes through on the on the podcast, which is kind of, you know, tell me about the early days of hustle and then tell me about what you do for self-care uh, as a as a founder. And then, you know, tell me about what you've learned along the way. I, I think I'm remembering that correctly. And when he had me on, he got to the self-care question, which uh, I had I was the I think I'm the first person to to kind of rock his boat a little bit, which is I punish weakness. I, I have no self-care. Self -care. So for me, the concept of self-care is just you're too weak and you need to do more. So my hot take would be uh, if like to, to find, if, if you find yourself in a spot where you're not happy with what you're doing, or you're not fulfilled by your work, or you're not like there, there's not energy coming out of what you're doing, that to me, that's more of an indicator of you're doing the wrong thing than an indicator that you need to take time to recharge and, and do something else. So what I find almost now, I know Varun, you didn't say this specifically for this purpose, but like, it's almost what Varun just said, right? I need a vacation from my vacation because that was not fulfilling. It was not recharging. It was not, it, it's, it's work having small kids when you don't have a place to cook and they don't have their stuff and they don't, you know, like that. I, I totally get it, but I almost feel like that's the same thing in life where if you're not, Ener like deeply energized by the work that you're doing and it's not the thing that's fulfilling you, then maybe that's more of a sign of a problem than a sign that you need to take time away and recharge and, you know, do those types of things. So for, for me, I, you know, I, when I look at what I do to like re recharging in air quotes, it's um, like none of it is really recharging in the sense of like, relaxing or anything like that it, it's all stuff that just pushes me to kind of do more and go further and accomplish more things which i know is totally like a pathology of my personality type and and things like that 
if anybody's listening and you're into Enneagram, I'm a type eight. And so this is what we do. Uh, th- these are my people. Um, but I'm, and so I'm totally aware of that that's not the case for everybody, but, uh, I know that when I said this to Daniel, he was, he, this was not the answer he was looking for. I feel like we could do a whole podcast on agency owners and Enneagrams to be perfectly honest with you, <laughs> but you probably I'm, not could. Gonna, I'm not going to go down that road at this moment. Cause I think I'm a nine, three, like I'm a weird combo of stuff. So, um, but I was, well, that's a whole nother conversation. Um, that's interesting. So I guess, I mean, I, I, I would challenge you to say when it comes to relaxation, though, in terms of, you know, self-care comes in a bunch of different formats. And I know this is a hot topic amongst uh, people and humans throughout the past couple of years based on what's going on in life. You know, people say, oh, you need self-care. It's like a massage, a relaxing vacation someplace. Some you people, don't need any comes- of those things. Yeah, I was going to say, Varun's, uh, I'm going to call out your hat right now because I feel like this might be an opportunity to talk about it, joking aside. But, you know, exercise is one of those things that doesn't, that, that comes up quite frequently, like that people just use to decompress, you know, in some cases. It, it totally, I mean, I can totally relate to that. I mean, that is one form of relaxation for me, you know, that is the time. I mean, I've seen many times, um many days when i'm working out the day goes by so faster and i'm just in present moment and i'm just so happy on that day and i can compare that on the days when i'm not working out so it makes so much sense if you uh, are using some form of self-care it could be anything so um i can totally see that happening it's the idea of, um, you know, back to your original point, like if you're feeling, if you feel like you need a break from work, Michael, it's maybe you're not doing the right work. I mean, I feel like that could be a whole nother philo- philosophical conversation yeah. too, but I'm going to go there for a few minutes because I actually think it's important in terms of, you know, there a lot feeds into leadership and management and how you choose to run your agency and the values that you instill in terms of how things are things we talked a lot about with other agency owners through this too. It's like, how do you motivate people through times of challenges and stuff like that? But it, it it's, it's, you know, I don't know who said this or where I picked it up, but it's the balance of making sure that more often than not work, you should have more days where you want to go than unless when it, when the balance flips, when there's more days you don't want to be at the office, then maybe it's time to change what you're doing in some of those cases. I mean, that's physically, that's showing up in a virtual sense, I think, in a lot of cases. How do you, you know, you mentioned, you've mentioned as we've chatted that you're, a, you know, a hobby farmer. Is that, do you find that maybe it's not a relaxation, but it's a decompression point? Like, how do you find outlets for energy maybe on harder days? Is that a fair yeah, question? So, uh, it, it is, and I'll unpack it a little bit, but I think I have an interesting perspective and I'll, I, uh, I'm going to share an entrepreneurial st- story just super briefly, just to sh- share like a glimpse of how I view the world. So um, are you guys familiar with JW Marriott, the, the founder of Marriott Hotels? Mm-hmm. You know, anything about his background? Okay. No. So Marriott was an immigrant to the United States. He actually started as a sheep herder. He was a shepherd and had a flock of sheep. He saved up enough money from being a shepherd to open an A&W root beer stand. He was successful with that a franchise. He was successful with that franchise, did what every other entrepreneur in the world would do, which is uh, once you're successful with that one, he opened up two other A&W root beer stands in, in different parts of the city. And I think one of them was in a different city completely. And then he noticed that there was um, this uh, big uh, difference between one of the A and W Rupert stands that was outperforming the other two in a pretty ridiculous way, and so he went and studied and tried to understand why was because in a franchise model that shouldn't happen, right? In a perfect franchise model, every franchise should roughly perform to market, right? Like you're picking locations that have the same foot traffic, you're selling the same things at the same price, you're looking for demographics that are very similar. So a, a, a franchise that outperforms in a significant way the other franchises is a is a big outlier. And so he wanted to understand that outlier. And so he went to that franchise and, and um, sat in the back of the store and realized that there were a bunch of people pulling up in cabs, purchasing food and getting back in the cab and leaving. 
And he followed one of those cabs and it ended up going miles outside of town. This was in the 1940s, uh, late 1930s, early 1940s, went miles outside of town to an airstrip uh, where there was an airport and the person got out of the cab with their little bag of A&W root beer food and got on the plane. Uh, now, this is where it gets interesting. This is still when airplanes fell out of the sky. So <laughs> air travel is still pretty dangerous, uh, which is why they were so far out of the city, right? It's not like today where you can get off a plane and within five, 10 minutes, you, you can be next to civilization. And so now he did a couple of things that, again, I think any entrepreneur would do. The first jump is he started, he did legit start opening A&W root beer stands in every city that had an airport, which is kind of awesome. Uh, so that that's super classic. Of, of course, you would do that. Then he takes an entrepreneurial leap that is still a leap, but it's a small one. He started the very first, uh, he did a partnership with, I want to say it was Pan Am Airlines. I'm doing all this from, from memory. Uh, and he did a partnership with Pan Am Airlines to start the first in-flight food service where he delivered food on the plane. So we have JW Marriott to thank for crappy airplane food uh, next time you fly. Uh, and then uh, he made a big entrepreneurial leap that very few entrepreneurs do, which is he then stepped back and said, okay, what I've really discovered is not somebody else to buy my food. What I've really discovered is a whole new customer that the world has never seen before. Somebody who flies on airplanes is new. They're a new customer. They've never existed because air travels never happened. So what else can I offer this customer that they might need? And that's where the idea for hotels next to airplanes come. And I have a longer version of this pitch, but I'm going to do it really quick. So that's where the ideas of, 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 uh, of, of hotels next to airports come from. Then he figures out, because at this time, most uh, tr business travel is a day trip. You're going to fly to New York and you're going to give a pitch and then you're going to fly back home. And he realizes this is like before the days of uh, Ernst and Young and Deloitte consultants who like, you know, are world warriors and fly in for three, four days. Like that doesn't exist yet. Right. Um, and so, but what, what he realizes as is that the business travel is traveler is starting to stay overnight. And so he starts a new brand of uh, hotels called courtyard hotels that are downtown and downtown locations. And people can stay there for a couple nights a week. And then that of, of course expands to like three or four days. And then he starts the residence in brand of hotels, which is a little bit more geared towards people who want to be able to cook in their suite and stuff like that. If you ever wondered why we have so many hotel brands, this is, <laughs> this is where that all came from. Uh, then he figures out, this is going to get directly to your question. Then he figures out that a whole new type of travel is happening that has never happened before, which is called leisure travel. And leisure travel is a new thing that didn't exist in the world until about the 1950s, 1960s. And he starts a, a whole chain of Marriott hotels geared towards people vacationing. And so he starts building out these vacation destination locations in places like Florida and California and things like that as Disney's being built and all those types of things. Then he figures out there's this thing called international travel and he starts opening Marriott hotels uh, overseas in Europe. And then he figures out that there's this um, thing that you could do on the ocean. And he launches the first, he does a joint partnership with somebody who builds ships to launch uh, the very first cruise line, uh, which is basically a Marriott hotel on the water, uh, which we all know how cruises go today. And so like it just tremendous amounts of innovation, but a lot of it, what, what you really see when you look at the story is that like what we think of as leisure travel wasn't a thing until roughly the 1950s. And if you go all the way back to like, if you were a citizen of Rome, uh, you know, a thousand years ago, then um, th this concept of leisure and recharging and stuff like it just didn't exist. Right. Except for the most elite aristocracy is not a thing. Right. Like if you were the working class, you worked. That's what you did. You did it from uh, roughly the age of eight until you died. Um, and so, you know, part of my answer is uh, I am a worker and that is kind of how I identify myself. And it's it's part of what I care about. And so when I think of the farm and why I started the farm and what the Harvey farm does to me that is recharging is it gives me a place where I can do work with my kids, um, father to young boys. And I want, obviously want to instill in them life skills and values and create a space where I can show, not tell um, what I care about and what I value and what, um, who they should be. And so the farm creates space for us to do that together. We, we build things, we nurse things to help. We, we have livestock. That's primarily the farming we do. We don't do crops. We do um, pigs, sheep, goats, turkeys, chickens, bees, things like that. And so uh, it's, a, it's a way for them to see animal husbandry, which is really close to modeling what fatherhood should look like in my mind and what it means to be a, a good friend and, and to care for things. Um, 
and even when I look at my exercise life, because um, like Varun, I, I also love working out. Um, I go to the gym two, three times a week. I own, I, I'm a part owner in a dojo, crazy into martial arts. I also attend another dojo. So I, I, I practice judo, Aikido, uh, jujitsu, a little bit of boxing. Um, but so I do that as well. I do rucking, but almost all of it is geared towards competition. Because I, I, it's not relaxing. Like I want to achieve the next belt. I want to compete in a judo competition later this year. I want to compete in a go rec competition later this year. Like I'm, I'm very focused on using that time while it is recharging and it does clear my head and it does create, a, you know, a, a different experience than what it means to work in front of a laptop in front of Excel. Um, it's, uh, it, it's still very much focused on challenge my challenging myself and my kids and my family to achieve the next level. And I, I think a lot of that comes from that, uh, again, if you, if you look at how in the total human experience, this concept of leisure that we are very focused on right now in today's world is such a small part of the human experience. Leisure is a very, very new idea. And, I, I, and some small part of me thinks that that's why people are so dissatisfied when they don't get it or when they don't feel like they get it uh, is because I, I'm kind of a believer we're, we're really kind of not made for that. And so um, we're made to work and we're made to produce and we're made to take care of each other and we're made to challenge one another. And, and like uh, it, when I look at my best friendships and my closest friendships, those are people who challenge me to do more and I challenge them to do more. And when I fail, they're there to help pick me up and take care of me. And I, like, they're like, it, it's not like, it's not all, um, you know, hard and heartless and stuff like that. Like these are people who care deeply about me and would do anything for me and, and I would do anything for them. But it, it's not in the sense of like, oh, it, it, you know, J Jesse, it's okay. Like, you know, you just do you. It would be like, Jesse, <laughs> like you're complaining about this thing. Go fucking solve it. Go. I'm sorry. I probably shouldn't cuss. I don't know if you guys. You can cuss. It's podcast. all good. Okay. We don't get uh, like, but it, it would be go fucking solve it and deal with it. And if you need help, I'm here for you and I'll help you. And I'll, you know, like, tell, tell me what you need and let's go do it together. Um, but it, it's def I'm definitely going to show up as a challenger in your, in our relationship and trying to push you to achieve more. And I'll be there every step of the way to help you do it, but it's not okay for you to just be okay with the status quo and complaining about it. There's like so many things I want to react to and what you said in that. Um, Cause I think there's a lot of, it, a lot of it personally resonates with me. Um, so it's, it's interesting to hear your perspective and how the motivation, you know, I am, and we're going to go a little personal for a hot second. Like I'm not one of those people like finding a relaxing beach vacation and sitting there and doing nothing. I get bored real quick. I'm like, what else can we go see? Where can we go? What can I go hunt? Like, where can I learn how to do? What are we eating? For me, it usually comes down to 99% of the time is food. What are we eating? What are the locals <laughs> eating? What are they visiting? What can I try? I think even in the way that you've described it, it's providing brain space to focus on something else that you're passionate about. And I think yes. that's where to take it back to what you had originally said is it's it's relaxation is a is kind of an interesting word in some cases because the perception is that calm, cool, like chill, but everybody's relaxation looks a little bit different from you know, yeah. and and uh, it's it's an interesting it's an interesting challenge for even agency owners. And I think we're, I'm, you know, in, in COVID, let's kind of talk a little bit about, I wanted to, and we'll backtrack for a minute, but the, you know, the idea of having team members who, who work for you and building culture and building motivation and, you know, really building a place where you want people to come and be at work and be their best selves and challenge each other. Um, you know, how do you, how do you do that within all of your businesses? How do you kind of expand that, would you say it's a philosophy that you share as part of your leadership within these organizations or, you know, cause everyone's a little bit different. I'd love to hear your take on, um, you know, people who aren't eights. How's that for, <laughs> <laughs> for our question? <laughs> nice. Yeah. Uh, so I have, a, I have a couple of different responses to that. So, so one is um, in every one of, these businesses, um, there is uh, typically at least one other person who is primarily running that that business. So in full stack, we, you know, our CEO is is Don Lively. She's the co-founder there with me, and um, she, you know, she, she's the one who's primarily focused on the culture there and growing it and making sure that it's you know the people who work there love love working there and 
in tenant tracker it's keith and in waterly it's chris and in um combined curiosity it's connor and in developer town my my um significant other and this one is uh julie de sutter who's our coo julie spends a lot of time deeply thinking about how do we engage employees how do we make them feel like they're connected to something that is more than just the client project that they're working on that that, that they feel like it's meaningful work um that they f- they feel like they're a part of a, co- a company that actually cares about them she spends a l- I, I will be perfectly clear she spends a lot more time thinking about that than i do uh thank thank goodness um and so she comes up with a a, a ton of ways to to reach out to employees to um to, to to try to reflect that and i would say the the thing that i do in that is i i try to reflect that in um at a at a minimum i think the thing that i bring to the table there is is trying to make sure that that's reflected in the way that we uh, represent ownership and profit sharing and um and tr- trying to make sure that if we're winning as a company that everybody who's involved on this journey is also winning in that way um and and so i i would say i'm 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 involved in that process julie does a good job of keeping me involved but she's really driving it inside of developer town which is our our agency um the thing that I think that I am good at is for um, key players within Developer Town. You know, I try to take time to form a personal relationship with them and and share with them, you know, my philosophy for um, what it means to be engaged and understand what they want out of their their time here at Developer Town and and better understand how you know I and we can provide that to them. And so, um, I think when you step back and you look at the systems that we put in place to engage our team and um, develop culture and make sure people feel cared for. I, I think Julie is very, very much better at that than me. Um, and, and then as a, as an introvert who, um, is much more geared towards one-on-one personal relationships, I'm, I think I'm pretty good at, um, developing a direct relationship with, uh, key people within the company and making sure that they feel valued and, honored and um taken care of as and that they can help shape the future of this company which is what i really want right that uh everybody involved feels like they can put a dent um on this company in this market that we work in and with the clients that we that we work with um really have an impact on the types of things that we do so doing the impactful work and um you talked about you know how to help team understand or, or realize that they are doing a meaningful work what does the meaningful work look like what does like agencies talk about you know culture and you know doing work which is impacting the society the culture and everything but what does that mean to you guys what does because does that mean that you are turning down projects that are not right fit um you are taking only you are very selective about your clients as a business owner on one side i feel that it is yeah. great but as a business goal is to make money and you know be profitable and grow but when you are turning down the work how does it fit into this picture yeah um so i uh, i'll give you an answer and then i'll give you some stories so the the answer is that you know it's obviously a, a pendulum and if if you talked to me pre-covid i would have said uh, i would have shown you tons of projects that we turned down because they weren't a good fit and then during covid uh you want us to flip burgers cool we got people who can do that like bring it we'll we'll do whatever you need us to do right to to keep people employed and and figure it out um so you know pre-covid i do think we had uh you know we had the luxury of of being able to pick and choose our our projects a, a little bit more and during COVID, that obviously changed, particularly when it was very uncertain what the future looked like, right? If you think of the first 12 months of lockdown, um, when when people were still trying to figure out PPP and you know stuff like that, it, it was just a, a very chaotic time. And, and talking with the sales team here, we, we very much geared towards, if, if we can put people to work, we'll put people to work. It, it doesn't really matter what the work is. Um, and by the way, our team was super on board with that, right? Like, I mean, the whole company came together to to figure that out and make it happen. And, and we had awesome support from our team uh, as well. And so now we're, we're kind of swinging that pendulum back. Um, so if, if you were, uh, we actually had a sales standup today. And if you were sitting in on the sales standup, you would have heard discussion around like, okay, how do we start to move back towards, uh, con- continue, I would say, continue to move back towards the type of work that we want to be known for and that, that we think we're best suited for. 
um, moving away from uh, some of the things that are just like, okay, like, uh, oh, you you guys need a, a data person. Cool. I got a data person. Let's get them, to, you know, like less of that and more about like, what's the type of work that we want to be known for? What what are we unique and special at? And how do we do that? So I think the real answer to your question is, is that like, you know, there, there's definitely trade-offs there. And some of that depends on the overall market and the economy and, and what opportunities come to us. Now, that being said, there's a couple of stories that I love to tell that that really try to paint a picture of who we want to be and the type of impact that I think we can have. I remember in the early days, uh, we used to do a lot more work with startups than than we do today. We, we do a little bit work with startups, but when we founded the company, the idea was we were going to help founders take digital products to market, um, p- particularly SaaS products. And we we I brought on um, this project manager. Uh, he was our first like real project manager hire, like that his full-time job would be to help uh, deliver projects. And uh, we might've been, some of this cloudy, but because uh, it's been a long time ago, but I, I want to say we're maybe like 12 to 15 employees. We, we brought this person in and, uh, and he was coming from a big IT organization. I, I mean, he had done work at like AT&T, Liberty Mutual. Uh, you just think like big fortune 100 companies, right? He had tons of experience um, delivering projects, which on paper looked amazing. Uh, like, like this is a, this is a guy who understands the finance, understands marketing, like just understands all the things that need to happen. And he said all the right things. He understood the risk. Like, so he's willing to, to, to jump into a small little 15 person agency and, and take the risk, which is great. So he, he, he joins us. He, I put him with his first startup, um, which was only like, a, I want to say like a $350,000 project, which is today would be small, but back then was like our biggest project. And uh, he's working with these three founders who are trying to take this product to market. And, uh, you know, he he's kind of struggling. I could tell he's struggling a little bit. And so I, I pull him aside after 30 days. I'm big on the like 30, 60, 90 kind of a process. So I, I pull him aside at, at the end of the 30 days and I'm like, hey man, how do you, you know, you tell me, how do you think you're doing? He's like, man, I'm I'm really struggling. I know I'm not doing my best work and uh, you know I'll, I'll figure it out I'll, you know I'll, I'll get in front of it just give me a little bit more time and I'm like great as long as you see it you know and, and you understand what's going on like let, let's figure it out together so he goes a little bit more starts getting me engaged a little bit more asks more questions you know get, we're starting to make some of the right changes we sit down again at the 60-day review and and I'm like okay now how do you think things are going he's like I, I can't do this anymore I have to quit I'm like, what, what you're just now starting to turn the corner. Like, what do you mean you got to quit? Like, this is not, this is not what I want to hear. Like, uh, you know, you're, you're key, you know, you're, you're kind of a key hire. I was really hoping you'd help us do these things. He's like, I just can't take the stress. He's like, if, if I fail, you could give me a $15 million project at AT&T. And if I fail, fail is, you know, could mean like I deliver that $15 million project, with $18 million, you know, like, so I go over budget or I'm three weeks late, or I'm whatever. It's like, it's not, it's, it's, it's kind of fake money. Like it's not, it's not real. I'm like, there's no human on the other side of that, that I can look in the eyes and be like, like I screwed you. (laughs) Like you didn't succeed because of me. He's like, every time I sit down with these founders, they've mortgaged their houses. They've quit their jobs. They like their success is 100% dependent on what we do as an agency and what we deliver to them. I can't handle like I'm not sleeping at night. I can't like I'm not eating. I can't like I cannot handle this. I'm not made for this. I can't get out of my head that if we fail, these these three guys are screwed. Um, and so he quit uh, and and went back to uh, I, I believe went went back to kind of corporate America. And that is when I think of impact. That's one of my favorite stories to, to that, that comes to mind. Like. We're helping people early days. It was startup founders, but but even if you look at the the businesses that we work with today, even though some of them are Fortune 500 companies, for when they reach out to us and when we get involved, for those people, these are there's very real risk involved, and there's very real risk in choosing an agency like Developer Town over choosing Accenture, right? Like like nobody ever got fired for hiring IBM, right? Like. You choose a small fifty-person agency in the middle of Indianapolis, you, you get fired if you if you're not successful, right? Like, so they're taking risk working with us. Like, there, there's a very real sense of if we don't deliver, and it's again, it's not like we never make mistakes. It's not like we always hit deadlines. We never go over, but of course, like software is hard. Building companies is hard. Launching products is hard. But the sense that like we have skin in the game and our clients are only successful to the extent that we're successful. That's the impact that we talk about. 
in, in this situation, how, how do you position yourself? Like you talked about, you know, Fortune 500, you talked about companies like Accenture, you compete with them or you don't like, you know, in what capacity? Because we, in we the do. agency, you do compete with Accenture. So you are like a full service consulting firm, do everything in-house. You know, I, I have one deals. I have one deals against them and lost deals against them. Yeah. Uh, although they've never heard of us, but uh, so, so for us, what, what, what I would say we focus on what, what I want to be the best in the world at is helping companies build and launch new digital products. And when I say build and launch, that's, that's from an idea on a napkin to uh, the customer discovery, to positioning, to building the product, to la- launching a minimum viable product, iterating, in the market with early adopters on that product to actually get product market fit. And then, um, you know, slowly at that point, once we have product market fit, you know, slowly starting to transition to, a, you know, that to an in-house team or something like that. And then we start to fade to black. The, the reason why I think all of those things are interesting um, is because it, it requires the full breadth of um, services that, that we care about, which are, you know, the design, marketing not from the sense of like we don't do like marketing like we we don't do campaigns we don't do digital marketing we don't do any of that stuff but from the sense of like you to do to to build a product you need to understand a market you need to understand your customer you need to understand the competition you need to understand the context in which you're building and deploying this thing and all of that should feed into the personas of the buyer and the user and all of that feeds into you know the the product roadmap and who you need to compete with and how you build a defensible moat around the intellectual property or or data or customers that you're bringing on board or you know whatever the case may be so that that level of marketing uh design that leads into you know, engineering and building products, uh, which leads into DevOps. And when you think of the long tail of product, particularly nowadays, there's often a data component to that, which leads into the data work that we do. So when you look at a new product launch, it engages every element of what we do as a business, design, marketing, software development, uh, engineering, data science, all the DevOps, all those things. And, and you know, we want to be the best in the world we're not yet, you know, we're, I think we're good, but you know, we could get better at building and launching new products. And so, um, that, that's the thing that we want to focus on. If you're, if you've got a product that's been in production for three years and you're just looking to shift maintenance from one team to, to somebody else, not us, don't, don't call us not, we're probably not going to be a good fit for that. Cause you don't need all the things that we do, right? Like you may need a programmer. You may need somebody to do a refresh on design somewhere, but like, it's not, it, it's not the same as saying, hey, I have an idea. I think our customers might want this thing. How could we prove that? How could we take something to market with a small enough risk profile to test that out? And then if, it, if we're right and it's successful, we could blow that up into a big market-changing opportunity. How big are you guys currently? You're 50, 55 people? Yeah, we're, we're just under 50 full-time employees. And then we probably have another 20 to 20, it depends, 20 to 25 subcontractors who work with us at any given point in time. Um, we work under a philosophy that um, we, we kind of always want, um, uh, well, one, strong partners. So we can kind of flex up as we need to when opportunities come along. Um, but also it's a little bit of a risk management um, thing where, uh, you know, if we had a large project and in like, you know, four, four to 10 people hit the bench all at once. We don't want that to be four to 10 of our people. <laughs> we would love that to be, uh, you know, three to six of our people. And then the other four, are maybe subcontractors that, uh, you know, we can kind of let them go do their own thing. And we only have to find work for the people who hit the bench. How has that experience been working with contractors? Because that is something, you know, we're seeing more and more uh, after especially COVID. Like earlier, there used to be people around the country, but now they started talking about nearshoring because of the rising salaries and expenses yeah. getting higher and higher. Um, how do you deal with that? How do you approach that? And how do you mitigate risks working with contractors? Yeah, a couple of answers. Um, so most of the people we've partnered with, we've been working with for for years. So if it's a firm, I, I mean, I could rattle off some amazing agencies that we work with, Test Double, Bendy Works, Engineering here in Indianapolis, um, Eighth Light in Chicago, you know, just a, a handful that come to mind that we have long multi-year relationships with where our people work on some of their projects, their people work on some of our projects. We know how they work. We share values. We share technology stacks like that. Like these are some of the best 
people. Um, love love them as humans, love working with them, and and our teams when when we're working on their projects, our our team feels appreciated, and I, I hope the same is true vice versa. You look at Bendy Works. We we recently um, brought one of their folks onto one of our projects, um, and and I think it was the second or third time that that person that person had been on a developer town project. So uh, just a lot of experience uh, when you develop deep relationships like that. So so that would be one answer. We also, this was um, something Julie DeSutter, my COO, pushed hard for years ago. I want to say it's been five or six years now. We've, we have nearshore employees. Um, so we, I want to say we have like seven or eight nearshore employees right now. Uh, we, we, they are employees. We think about them, talk about them as employees. They're technically employed by somebody else over there. Uh, you know, think of it as like a PEO or um, a consulting company, but, but you know, there, there are folks, we, we pay a fixed rate for them. We, we don't think of them as um, uh, staff hog. We think of them as our folks, they get developer town swag, they get invited to things, you know, we, we do all that stuff. Um, that, that was a really smart move. I mean, it was a smart move five years ago, six years ago. It's a really smart move today, to, to your yeah. point. Um, and and, the, and those folks are uh, amazing. Like, I mean, they're, they're, they, they, you know, challenge us just like, you know, other employees would. They, um, you know, they, they want to grow and, and skill and experience and, um, and take on new challenges. And, and so I, I think that was a, a really smart move on Julie's part. Um, years ago, and in uh, pushing for that, and uh, we we've seen the benefit. We saw the benefits then, and, and we see them now. We continue to see them now. So, I, I mean, we 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 what our goal is when we start a new relationship with a partner like that is we want it to be a long term relationship. We're not looking for um like think of it like a classic staffing company, right? Like we're not looking to bring somebody in, put them on a project for three to six months release them to the wild and let them go do whatever, you know, and then never see them again. It, it's, it's just not who we want to be. It's not the type of work that we want. We, we want to work with people um, for, for the long run. So we kind of know what we're getting. How do you qualify them? Right? Because I mean, I wonder like you, you chose few agencies, you chose a, a nearshoring company five years ago. Do you remember how did you, what process yeah. did you follow? Or how, if you were yeah. to do it now, what would you do? Like, how would you make sure that, because there are so many companies out there, it's hard to find the right team. Yeah. Uh, so a handful of answers to that. So for the for the nearshoring um, process, we actually, um, I remember the spreadsheet. Uh, Julie and her team built a spreadsheet of like 15 different companies in South America uh, and, uh, and, and, you know, rated them all, you know, according to all sorts of different metrics. And we sat down as a leadership team and kind of prioritized, I want to say it was Man, again, this is so long ago. My memory sucks, but uh, I want to say we picked like three to five of them that you know we wanted to take to the final round, right? And then um, Jason Vasquez, who's one of my co-founders here, is our uh, at the time was our CTO, and um, and I think somebody else on the engineering team flew to South America, did a tour, you know, stopped at a number of these places, talked to them. I, we had done some obviously some phone conversations beforehand, some basic tech interviews beforehand, but you know, physically went there. Part of that is just making sure they are who they, you know, you'd say a lot of things on a website, right? Like it's different when yeah. you get there and you, you, you look at the building, you look at how people are working stuff like that. So we wanted to understand that, but um, did the road trip, got to know them. And then of course we dabbled. Uh, so when I, I think when we kicked off, we picked two firms and we, we brought on resources from both of those firms had a okay experience with one, but a great experience with the other. And, and that just sealed the deal. So where we had the great experience, we leaned into that relationship, haven't looked back. It's been awesome. Uh, I, I would say of the, I don't, you know, I, I'm going to make up a number. I don't know what the real number is here, but let's say there's been 15 people over the last six years who've kind of rotated in from that firm. And, you know, some of them have stayed with us, some of them have moved on, but, uh, you know, of that, whatever that number is, it's probably on that order of magnitude. Um, every single one of them has been great. I, you know, maybe there was one, maybe there was one that we were like, Ooh, that's kind of not as advertised. You know what I mean? Like, uh, I mean, every single one of them has been great. Um, and most of them are, are kind of, you know, like go-to folks on our team. <laughs> like I, I, I think of Joel and Javier, you know, like th these are some of the names that of like, when, when you talk to our team or like, who, who are the people you're going to lean on in this situation? These are the names that come up. It's freaking awesome. So, uh, so I'd say that's how we did it on the, on the near short side. Um, with our other partners, 
I was lucky enough to fall into a group. There, there's a couple of group agency groups out there. One is called Cluster. One is called OpsConf. Um, a big Venn diagram overlap between those two. But you know, a bunch of agencies um, that uh, you know share values and get together to share ideas and stuff like that. I fell into those two groups a, a few years ago and met some other agency founders, and so um, was very quick to see where there was shared alignment on values. And I, I would say that's a that's a big part of um, what makes those relationships work, right? Like, so you just take, for example, a project that goes south. Everybody has had a project that's gone south, right? Um, let, let's say you get an angry client and, and now you, you're stuck in a situation where you're like, okay, we could, we could do nothing, just let this go the way of the buffalo and die off and, you know, whatever. Or we could, we could step up and we could say, hey, look, you know what? You're right. We have shared, like, we have shared ownership of this problem. We weren't faultless. We're, here's what we're going to do on our dime to make this right. Um, or, or you could go down the path of, of potentially even returning money or, you know, whatever, like, or uh, God forbid, go down the lawsuit path. Thank, thank goodness I've never chosen that door. But, um, but, but, but even just that conversation of like, hey, here's what we're like, yes, we're culpable in this too. We, we made a mistake, you know, like nobody's perfect. We made mistakes too. And here's, our, here's what we're willing to own in this. And this is what we'll do to help make it right. So just think of that conversation. When you've got the right partner and you show up to your partner and you say, hey, this is the situation. This is what the client did. This is what we think we did. This is what your employee did as part of this team. Here's what we want to do. Now, we would never say, here's what this means you have to do. We would say, how would you like to support us in that? Never with any of these firms has it never not been a conversation where it's like, yeah, if you think that's the right thing to do, that's what we're going to do. That's what we are going to do, right? Like we're in it. We're there to support you. Like, let's, let's go do it. That sounds like good judgment. So that's the values alignment. Like it, it, once you know you have that, like that's the most important thing. It means you also know that they're probably going to hire people with the same filter that you have. They're probably going to retain people with the same filter you would use. They're probably going to promote people with the same, roughly the same filter you would use. Again, might be different technology stacks, definitely different job markets, but, but you get the idea. And so when you do that, it dramatically de-risks that decision to say, okay, we need five people for this project, but we only have four. Let's reach out to engineering and ask them if, if they have somebody who's available. You could feel pretty confident, 80 to 90% confident that whoever they give you, whatever name they give you is probably going to be a good fit. And if they're not going to be a good fit, they're going to disclose that in advance. They're, they'll say something like, Hey, you said that this was Kotlin work and, um, you know, I have a developer who's done Kotlin, but it's all been on Android. None of it's really been back end Kotlin. Um, so we think they could, they're a senior engineer and they've, you know, and like, and, and they have touched Kotlin, but we just want to be super clear. They've not done that. Are you still okay? Do you still want them? Like that, man, you just found yourself a winning partner, right? Like that's exactly who you want to work with. Yeah, that, that's so true. I mean, I totally can see, uh, yes. We, we've had some experiences ourselves working with partners and you can quickly see when things, when you don't get aligned, right? When the values are not matched, when they are not owning their mistakes, when they're running away from, you know, things that they, they uh, accounted for, but, and, and you know, like this is not going to work. Um, you also talked about a um, few things you do differently in your company with the open books concept. Right. So yeah. talk to us about that. Like, how does that work? And in that cons, uh, you know, concept also, when you work with other agencies, how does that play a role? Like, how do, um, you know, how does the, the finance work when you work with the agencies? I think I'm asking two questions, two different questions, right? Yeah. Um, so let's do one, one at a time. Yeah, well, first, uh, shout out Jack Stack, great game of business. If you're exploring uh, open book accounting uh, at any level, go read that book. Uh, fan fantastic read. Even if you're not exploring open book accounting, go read that book. It it's a it's it can be kind of a depending on where you are in your own entrepreneurial journey, it can be a, a pretty big game changer. Um, now, now I I call that out specifically to say we're not quite that open books. Like nobody, n none of our employees have access to QuickBooks and can do their own reporting and stuff like that. So um, what we what we talk about um, pretty much once a quarter, we do a financial review. Uh, the only exception to this in twelve years is we did not do financial reviews in twenty twenty. <laughs> Uh, which uh, was on purpose. They they would have been bad. People would jump ship. Uh, that would not have been good. Uh, so we did not do that. But uh, every year, other than twenty twenty, we did we do quarterly financial reviews. Um, 
And so what that looks like, we talk about top line revenue, we talk about cost of goods sold, we talk about expenses, and then we talk about profits. Um, and we do we do an annual profit sharing plan. So every, everybody's going to know what the profits are at the end of the year anyway, right? Because we, we do profit sharing. And so we want people to understand, um, well, one, we want them to understand the core unit economics of this business, right? Uh, we get paid in billable hours, and that means these types of things. And that's what drives revenue. And every year when you see us fall off a cliff in Q4 because of Thanksgiving and Christmas and stuff like that, like, turns out that happens, every, you know, that's not unique. That happens every year. I think in 12 years, we had one Q4 where our revenues went up. Every other 11 other years, it's gone down in Q4, which is, I think, true for almost every agency. Um because we get paid in billable hours, right? Like that, that's how that works. People take time off it. It means we don't get paid. So we, we want people to understand that. Um, uh, and so we, we talk about those things. We talk about expenses. We talk about cost of goods sold. We, you know, we, want, we want everybody to understand kind of what this business is and how it's successful. Um, and so that, that's kind of the first thing we talk about. Then um, we currently have some incentives tied to some of those things. Like we have a billable hours bonus that we pay out quarterly. Uh, we're a- actually in the process of changing that. We think we could be a little more sophisticated um, than, than the way that we are now and, and potentially tie in other things. Think of more of like a balanced scorecard. Um, that, that's a, a, a phrase that Julie is very big on um, that, you know, you don't just want an incentive that is so perverse that it leads to, you know, the wrong behaviors. You want to make sure that you're balancing that against other things that are valuable to us as a company and to our clients. Um, and so we're, we're in the process right now of kind of redesigning that billable hours bonus to say, what are, you know, what are some of the other things that we could take into account to, um, make sure that we're delivering the best product to our clients, which isn't always billable hours. Right. Um, and so we'll, we'll probably, uh, reconfigure that a little bit, but, but just this idea of, we want to make sure everybody in the business knows how we make money. We want to make sure they know how much we're making or, or how little they're ma- we're, we're making, unless it's a global pandemic. Uh, and we want to make sure that they, you know, that when we win as a firm, uh, that that everybody wins um, through profit sharing. And so I, I would say that's the first place that we start with that process. Then your sec, what was the second part of your question? How do we, how does that second, then translate into uh, our relationships with our partners, subcontractors, yeah. and other agencies and things like that? I think that's not a question we've ever asked before on the podcast, if I can remember. So I'm really curious to hear your answer. So what's interesting is many of our partners are ESOPs. Um, so uh, uh, t- uh, Test Double is an ESOP. Engineering is an ESOP. Um, uh, I, I know that there, uh, uh, Eighth Light has employee ownership. They're not an ESOP, but they do have an em- employee ownership program. We have an employee ownership program. Um, so when you think through like the, the part, so again, going back to shared values, all, all of these companies are doing the same things. Um, what and they may not be doing them the same way, but because the values are the same, their employees understand the unit economics of consulting. Their employees understand what it means to be profitable. Their employees understand um, what what the impact of an unha- unhappy client is long term. Uh, not and again, not just in the instance of that client being unhappy on that project, but like you know, you, a a lot for a lot of agencies, our best lead source is referrals and, uh, and repeat business, right? Like, uh, you know, when I think of where our business has come from over the last 12 years, all agencies, the best lead source is referrals. Yeah, right. Exactly. (laughs) I'll say it, not some, all. (laughs) So when you have a unhappy client, it's not about that client right then in that moment, right? This is a seed that has been planted. Is this seed going to bear fruit? Or is this seed going to bear weeds? <laughs> you do not want weeds if you're an agency owner, uh, because that that is at worst, it's a it's somebody who's not giving you referrals, or, or sorry, at best, it's somebody who's not giving you referrals. At worst, this is a detractor in the market who is actively telling people not to go work with you. Um, so you, you have to manage that. And so you want to make sure that your partners who you're bringing in are also very keyed into that and want to manage that as well, and also want the best outcome for that client. Um, and so we see that from a values alignment perspective. Uh, we've never done profit sharing out to a partner uh, like that. I, I would kind of be open to that discussion. If, if uh, somebody who's listening, you want to figure out how to do that, I'm, I'm, I'm game to try anything, but we've never done it. We have played bo- paid bonuses to partners um, in the past. If a client has passed a bonus along to us, we will pass that bonus along to our partners um, because they earned it. Right, like it's a team. We we are big believers that it's a it's a team based effort. This is a team sport. We we sink or swim together, uh, and so um, we we have done that. If a client goes over the top for us, we make sure we go over the top with the partners that helped us do that. 
What's exciting you about the future? I mean, we've talked a lot about, I wasn't sure where we were going to end up today, but we ended up in a, in a couple of different topic areas that we haven't touched on, but I, I'd love to hear what do you see is coming? What are you looking forward to? What's driving yeah, your a, mental relaxation? I say that tongue in cheek. <laughs> <laughs> uh, on a personal level, uh, crazy excited about having kids the ages of 11 and six and j- just waiting to see what happens to them. That 11 year old is like on the cusp of like, I, well, I, I do think all the damage I could ever do to that kid I've done. Like, he, you know, he's, pre- he's pretty much fully baked, right? At 11, you're fully baked. And now I can influence him a little bit at this point, but I really think his friends probably have as big of an influence on him right now at this stage that, as I do as his dad. So super excited to see what, you know, what the next eight, 10 years looks like there with, with that, with him being a dad and, and with uh, my younger one. Uh, from a market perspective, crazy interested to see what happens in, in crypto and, um, you know, Web3 technologies in general. Um, it does feel, and other people have, have made this statement, but it does feel like we're in the Netscape days of Web3, right? Like so super crazy early um, that we're just now, like the NFT is like the first Netscape browser. Like it's like, hey, look, here's a thing. It doesn't really do anything yet. But uh, other than being a Ponzi scheme, but like, but that's a thing. It's a Ponzi scheme. Look, we can do that. Like, cool. Great. What? So what? It, like, you think about that five, 10 years from now, what is that? You know, that's like a scratching the surface of what this technology can do. Super interesting. Um, it's, a, it's a place where I want to invest more as a company from a technology perspective. Like, how, how can we be more active in that space and, and do more? Um, so I, I think that's super interesting. Um, I do think, again, from a market perspective as an agency, we, we are choosing to lean into um, financial services and healthcare as two industries that we want to do more in. We're going through high trust certification right now. We're trying to get the regulatory house in order. Um, and the reason we say that on, on the finance side, but partly because of um, Web3 and, and things like that, but um, but, but it's also other parts of finance. I, I do think, um, there, there's a lot of exciting things happening there from a technology perspective that historically were done by humans that, you know, now you can do with technology. Uh, and then on the healthcare side, I, I think COVID was a good tip of the iceberg for how, I mean, we all know the healthcare system in the United States was broken before COVID. It's just clearly broken in unredeemable ways on the other side of COVID. So I think if you, if you, if you're just playing the puck where it's going to be, and you look at where spending is going to be over the next five to 20 years from a, from a market perspective, there's so much, so much we need to do in healthcare, um, to, to get better uh, on every level that that's on the clinical side, as well as just finances, insurance, how money moves through that broken system, all that kind of stuff. And so from a, from a agency perspective, I think positioning ourselves to, to be able to play there, um, is a, is a strong move and going all the way back to, to the employee experience and where can you make an impact? I think there's something really compelling to say that um, uh, at Developer Town, with the types of clients that we want to work with and are going to try to position ourselves to work with, you can have a, a real tangible impact on people's lives from a healthcare perspective, and you can have a very real tangible impact on wealth creation from a finance perspective. And those are two things that I think, regardless of what end of the spectrum that you're on, you could probably get find find yourself in one of those two for something that's going to be exciting to you. This was a great conversation. Um, I feel like we probably could have spent another hour, maybe two. (laughs) So thank you so much, Mike, uh, for sharing some of your perspectives. So for folks listening, um, you know, Michael's available on the LinkedIn, both for Developer Town and his personal LinkedIn, your Developer Town's on the Twitter, the Facebook, the Instagram, and developertown.com. Did I get all those right? I think I did. You got them all right. Good. So thank you so much. That's it, everyone. If you learned something today or laughed, tell somebody about the podcast. Have a great day. Thanks for listening. Find our other episodes on agencies that build.com. Plus we're listed anywhere you find your favorite podcast.